Can you think of a time when everything changed in your life? Graduation from high school or college, birth of a child, a new job, moving to a new home, retirement, reassignment, the death of a loved one. We come to such a watershed moment in the life of a Syrian king this morning in 2 Kings chapter 5 and the first 14 verses. The main idea of which is this, wash and be clean leave the word of the prophet. Your outline is there before you. If it helps you, follow it. If not, ignore it. Let's pray, and we'll begin our time together this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you together asking that you would fill this place and fill us with your Holy Spirit. We ask that by your Spirit we might see what you would tell us in your word. We pray that you would help us to see ourselves in Naaman, see ourselves in this little girl, and see Christ in the prophet Elisha. Pray that you would remind us that indeed we have been washed, sanctified, justified in Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray that for those who do not know Christ, that they would be summoned to wash and be made clean, that you would summon them to believe your word. Pray that you might this morning give some the miracle of conversion. Lord, we thank you that you are in the saving business, that you are in the cleaning business, that you sent your son to spill his blood so that dirty, vile, unworthy sinners like us might be made clean might be made fit to enter into your presence. What a wonderful privilege this is. We thank you that we come together as people who are not just really good people this morning. We come together as sinners saved by grace. What binds us together is not our familial bloodlines, but the blood of Christ. We thank you that together we can call out to you and worship you as our good and great Heavenly Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man, with his master and in high favor. Because by him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. This is a jarring sort of introduction. It is abrupt. In chapter 4, we are with the sons of the prophets eating bread that was multiplied by the prophet Elisha. We see God's care for his people in the details of their lives. Before that, in chapter 3, we saw God give military victory to his people, but here we are shockingly taken to a man in Syria. Syria is the enemy of Israel. 
And yet we read that this great man, this Naaman, this commander of the Syrian army is so great, carries favor with his master because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. The Lord is at work through the pagan man Naaman and the unbelieving nation of Syria. That's surprising. And it's important. It teaches us that God is sovereign. God is sovereign not only over Israel, but over all nations. Makes me think of Psalm chapter 24 and verse 1 from our scripture reading this morning. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God claims the earth, everything in it, and all who live on it. He rules the world. He's able to use David's and Naaman's. I love a quote from one commentator. He says, Our God is both God of the church and Lord of the world. He draws near to his people, but that does not mean he allows pagans to run around unsupervised. God is in charge of Israel, and he is in charge of Syria. His sovereignty extends from the minor things like death in the pot and a bad stew brewed by the prophets, up to the nations. He is ruling the world. And herein lies a caution for us, friends. Naaman is useful to the Lord, but he does not know the Lord. Your usefulness is not the same thing as faithfulness. You understand? You can be very, very useful in a whole lot of ways without knowing the Lord. Usefulness is not faithfulness. You could be a really great parent, great grandparent, a good son or daughter, one of the best professionals anyone's ever worked with, successful in your career field. You could be a wonderful civic leader, very useful in the world, very useful in your family, very useful in your community, doing good things, and yet be unfaithful to God. Your usefulness is not the same thing as faithfulness. We make a mistake, friends, when we start to measure our spiritual lives, not by our relationship with the Lord and our obedience to his word, but with these things that we think we are doing all on our own. When we start to say, well, really, I did this, I did that, and therefore, I'm really close to the Lord. Do you see how useful I am? No. This is a way we trick ourselves into thinking that we are right with God or that our relationship with God is, is intimate and close when the reality is we've stopped depending on him. 
we're useful, but we're not faithful. I mean, this is Naaman's predicament. Not a predicament, it's his reality. He is useful in the hand of the Lord, but he has no idea who the Lord is. He is a mighty man of valor. But, you see that at the end of verse 1, he was a leper. Naaman has it all. He's a mighty man of valor, a war hero in Syria. He has the favor of all his superiors. We can bet that he lived a life of luxury. There's just one problem. He has a leprosy. He's the man who has everything, even leprosy. His leprosy defines him as much as his military victories. As much as any other quality about him, his leprosy stands out. It is important for us to note at this juncture that leprosy in the Bible, off it could include what's called Hansen's disease, but probably not here. Hansen's disease is what we think of when we usually think of leprosy, body parts going numb and falling off. It's probably not what's in view here. Leprosy is a, a broad term. It can refer to everything from rashes to eczema to psoriasis. Most suggest he had some terrible form of psoriasis. So whatever his skin condition, uh, if he were in Israel, it would be ritually defiling. But even in Syria, it's a big enough deal that people know about it and that it defines him. Despite all of Naaman's success, despite, despite all of his conquests, he can't get rid of this curse. He can't get rid of this leprosy so unrelentingly clings to him. It's a problem that he cannot fix. The author, having introduced us to the mighty man Naaman, now introduces us to a little girl in his home. Look at verse 2. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. It's almost callous how matter-of-fact the author lays this out for us. This girl had her home raided by Naaman, likely had her parents killed, and was snatched up as a spoil of victory. Not only that, she is then placed in the home of the one responsible. Uh, she's placed in the home of the one responsible for all of her plight. And to serve Naaman's wife. She's taken from her village to this foreign village, taken out of her family and put into this foreign family. And yet, as verse 3 will reveal, she does not despair. The author doesn't paint her with the hues of depression, but with the bright colors of faith. Here we have a faithful Israelite. Here we have a faithful child of God. Listen to what she says in verse 3. She just has a very small part but it's so significant. She said to her mistress, 
Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. This almost makes your jaw fall to the floor. It seems, I mean, if this is me, I am holding a grudge against Naaman and his family. I'm wishing evil on them. I'm dreaming up ways to bring them pain and suffering, to get my revenge, but, but not, not this little girl. She's got no grudge, no bitterness welling up within her. Now, she loves her enemies. In fact, she cares enough about Naaman to want to tell him, I know of a prophet who can make you well. Oh, that you would go to him and be healed. That would be wonderful. She's looking for the salvation of her enemy. She tells him there, there's a prophet that he can go to. I mean, maybe, th- this is so surprising, maybe we think uh, she's sending him to Elisha and hoping that he gets the Elijah treatment, you know, fire from heaven consuming him when he comes to the foot of the mountain. There's nothing in the text to suggest that. It just looks as if she is loving. She's been carried off from home, and yet she holds no grudges. She is not grumbling, and she holds on to both her love for God and her love for her enemies. And let's not skip over the first too quickly. She loves God, continues to love God. I can't tell you how often I have come across people that formally identified as Christians but don't identify as Christians any longer because something bad happened in their life. Usually some tragedy involving the loss of a loved one, shifting circumstance, and all of a sudden their their faith is revealed to be counterfeit. They become angry at God. They curse God. Not this girl. She loves God. The Lord. She believes in his prophet. She she points her enemy to the prophet. She wants her enemy to be made well, to know the God that she loves. This, This is incredible. Do you love God like that? Do you love your enemies like this little girl? She really does embody holiness that Jesus calls all his people to in the Sermon on the Mount. I think of a couple passages in particular that Matthew chapter 5 and verses 11 through 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Evil has come to her because of her association with God. Rejoice and be glad Because your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then in Matthew 5, verse 44, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. This little girl is a daughter of her father who is in heaven. She loves her enemy in whose house she serves. Do you love your enemies? Do you 
pray for them? Are you holding on to grudges and griping? Worse, maybe it's not even your enemies. Do you have love for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or are you embittered? We are to love one another. We are to love our enemies. This little girl sets a wonderful standard. And it's one she doesn't come on by herself. You see, we, we are able, church, to love our enemies because Jesus Christ has shown us the way. Because he loved us when we were at war with him. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? We were God's enemies, and he saved us. Jesus Christ, when we were set against him, loved us and gave himself for us. We know what it is to be an enemy of God. We know what it is to be dead in sin. We know what it is to be taken captive by the devil to do his bidding, and so we love those who are trapped in the shackles of sin. We love those who are enslaved to the evil one. We love them, and we pray for them. We pray that God's word would bring them awake. We pray that God would give them the miracle of conversion. We, like this little girl, point them to the prophet who can make them well. Love your enemies. This little girl points Naaman to the prophet through his wife, and Naaman listens. Look with me at verse 4. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver. 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Naaman trusts the word of the little girl that's come to his ears, and so he marshals together the right letters from the right people and all of the right resources. That's what the bit about gold and clothes is. It's, it's wealth that he can come and you know, perform the right transaction with. He has in his mind, I'm going to go see the prophet. I'm going to do my part, going to give him this wealth. He'll do his part, do a little magic, bada bing, bada boom. I will be healed. I'm, the reason he's going to the king is that the expectation is the king and the prophet would have a relationship, which in Israel they do not. For the reasons that are uh, seen throughout kings, the king is an idolater. He doesn't know the word of God or the presence of God. And it's that irony that is at the fore in verse 7. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes 
and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. So he, he, he comes up with two really good truths. And it's important to acknowledge them. He, he recognizes that he is not God. And he recognizes that he does not have the power of God. That's good. I mean, he even quotes the, the bit about, am I God to kill or to make alive? That's from the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy. It shows up in Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel. It's the Lord who kills. It's the Lord who brings to life. He, he recognizes that God is the Lord of life and that he is not. That's the good part. Here's the bad part. He has that theological knowledge, but he does not know God. In fact, if this king is Jehoram, we know that he has the experience of seeing the Lord turn water to blood so that he might trick the Moabites, give his people victory. Surely he has heard about the events of Mount Carmel and the works of Elijah. Yet despite his theological knowledge, despite his personal experience, God's king does not know God. Do you see the contrast? So we've seen this little girl, humble estate in the land of the enemy, and she's full of faith. And now we have God's king in Israel, seated on the throne, aware of theological truths, but without any faith in God. He doesn't pray. He doesn't call out to the Lord. He doesn't look to Elisha, the Lord's prophet. No, he mourns. He thinks that Syria has come up with an excuse to bring an assault against him. He does not know God. Is this king not a warning to us? It is possible for him to be overseeing God's people, to be in God's place, and yet not know the Lord. Friends, it is possible to be numbered among God's outward people, to be a member of a local church, and yet live without God. We can be like the Pharisees before us and acknowledge God with our lips while our hearts are far from him. Brothers and sisters, when we come together week after week to worship the Lord and to listen to his word, we are coming not just to learn intellectual truths. We're coming to learn about who God is so that we might love him and one another more. Our learning isn't about just getting knowledge. Our learning is about loving, it's about loving God. Our learning is about living in accord with the truth. It is our love for God that causes us to delight in hearing him speak to us in his word. It is our love for God that draws us to knowing him more and more. I mean, let's not fall into the trap of going through the motions of cold routine and bloodless Bible study. 
Yes, be disciplined in your routine. Yes, be disciplined in your quiet time, but don't allow them to become lifeless. Don't forget that the goal is knowing God, loving God. Of course, not every sermon is going to thrill you. Not every quiet time is going to put fire into your bones. Nevertheless, we give ourselves to these things, not as ends in and of themselves, but so that we might acquire kindling for our souls, so that we might burn with a deep love and passion for God and for his people. Friends, don't make the mistake of the king. Don't just get theological knowledge. Don't just fill your head with God's word. Fill your head with God's word with the goal of loving God more. It's possible to know about God, but not know him. Let us take warning from the king. The king doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know the Lord, and he certainly isn't going to call for Elisha's assistance, but Elisha comes to him. You see, the Lord has been stacking up circumstances so that he might bring Naaman into his family. He has conspired to cleanse Naaman and to convert Naaman. It is not by mistake that that faithful little girl ended up in Naaman's house. It is not by mistake that that faithful little girl knew of the prophet Elisha. It is not by mistake that she pointed Naaman to that prophet. And it is no mistake that Elisha sends for Naaman. Verse 8, but when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean but Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage we can picture this, can't we? Uh, Naaman shows up at the house of Elisha with all the pomp and pageantry commensurate with his position. Horses and all those changes of clothes. And in my head, I picture it with like a band out front, you know. Here he comes, he's showing up. And then Elisha doesn't even come out to meet him. In fact, Elisha is quite rude on purpose. The intent is to humble Naaman and to help Naaman realize that healing comes from the Lord on the Lord's terms, not from Elisha in and of himself. But I really, I would love uh, to have been this messenger that Elisha sends out. Can you imagine? Um, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Mr. Mr. Naaman, I know that you had an appointment with the doctor. 
Uh, but, um, you know, Elisha, he's, he's at lunch right now, and he's, um, he's quite busy with a sandwich, and uh, he's not going to be seeing you today, but <laughs> I'm so sorry again. Good news, um, he does have a prescription for you. <laughs> uh, sorry again. Uh, he wants you to, to, take a, to go, go take a bath. Go, go wash yourself. I mean, it sounds like an insult because it's a little <laughs> insulting. And Naaman, he responds. He's angry. It's like, do you think I haven't tried taking a bath before? Those ri- the river in Israel is it's not as clean as the rivers in Damascus. This is such an odd and an offensive prescription. It's stupid. Why would I do that? And it sounds like foolishness to Naaman. And we're going to get ahead of ourselves here by jumping out of the story a minute. But isn't this the way of God? To use that which sounds like foolishness to bring salvation to his people. You remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Non-Christian, I invite you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today. And I do so acknowledging that the gospel sounds like foolishness to you sounds ridiculous. I mean, I get it. Uh, Christians are saying to you that all of eternity, all of every man, woman, and child's well-being hangs on whether or not they trust and obey a Jewish carpenter who was crucified on a Roman cross thousands of years ago. I get it. It sounds foolish for me to say that there's a God who made you and who loves you, but you are at war with him. You hate him. Even if you don't recognize it in your soul, the Bible says you're suppressing the truth. You're his enemy. It sounds sounds crazy, but he sent his son to become what he was not while never ceasing to be what he was. He takes a second nature onto himself and becomes a man, God, the creator does, so that he can Die for your wrongdoing, for your treason against the God who made you in your place in just utter humiliation. Sounds ridiculous. Not only that, not only did he die for you, not only did he take the punishment that you deserve, but he offers to you the blessing that only he deserves. And he offers to share the eternal life that he has with the Father, with you, if you'll turn from your sin and trust in him. You know, well, how can he do that? Well, because he defeated death. He rose from the dead. Well, where is he now? Well, he's seated at the right hand of God in heaven. Okay, what does that mean? Well, what are the other promises here? What happens? Well, when you die, you will be absent from flesh, but you'll be present from him. And, and he's promised that he's going to return to earth, make it into heaven, and he's going to raise up your body and reunite it with your soul again. And you're going to live in a resurrected body with God and with his people happily ever after. Really? Yeah, yeah. And that's after he returns on horseback with a sword in his mouth. I get it. It sounds foolish to you. 
sounds as foolishness. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. My non-Christian friend, this message is true. You are at war with God. You have sinned against God. You've lived your life following your heart instead of listening to God's word. You are in danger of eternal punishment, and there is only one way to be made right with God through the foolishness of the cross. There's only one way to be made right with God by washing in the blood of the Lamb by faith. Yes, you must wash and be made clean. Indeed, the foolishness of the cross sounds as foolish as the instructions to Naaman to go and take a bath in the Jordan. And so many reject God's word. Doesn't make sense. We understand when Naaman says, I did my part. Why didn't you do yours? See, Naaman has his own idea of what God is like. And when God's prophet doesn't behave according to Naaman's expectations, Naaman, in his pride, rejects everything that the prophet has to say. That sounds a lot like us. We sort of customize Jesus and God. We try to make them in our own image. And when we don't like an ordinary word from God, well, we move on to something more entertaining. We, we often hope that God would do something more amazing for us, more entertaining, wave his hand over the spot, you know, rather than just speak to us in his word. We think we need something more than God's word, and so in our pride, we reject it. I mean, basically, Naaman is saying, I know better than the word of the prophet. I know better than God's word. And though we might not say it out loud, some of us think just this. Love my enemies? That'll never work. I need to crush them ruthlessly. Stay loyal to my spouse? I'll never be happy if I do that. Obey my parents? As if it's oppressive. Not to mention not any fun. Give up on gossip? How then will I stay informed? Consider others more significant than myself? I can't think of anything more harmful. Doesn't Jesus know how important self-care is? Hashtag treat yourself. I've got a mani-pedi later. Gather together regularly as a church member on the Lord's Day to build up the church in love and to worship God. I can't at least not most Sundays, I have more important things to do. Also, the church is full of hypocrites anyway. Christian, what commands of God do you go ahead and let yourself disobey because you think you know better than him? Maybe you even get angry at some of the commands of God. I can think of a, a couple that Always get the blood boiling. You have Hebrews 13, 7. Obey your leaders and submit to them. And of course, Ephesians 5, you were there before me. Wives, 
Obey your husbands. I mentioned these two because they are perhaps the most acceptable commands to disobey in the church today. The world has proclaimed for many years now that any and all authority is bad and that we ought to rebel against all of it and go our own way. And even in the church, we go, well, we don't really trust this or that leader and so no need to obey him. We'll do our own things. Wives are, are taught it doesn't matter if you love and respect your husband. I know, the, I know the Bible says that you'll be a daughter of Sarah if you do that, but don't worry about that. Don't worry about honoring him. That, that's antiquated and depressive. You don't need to follow those commands. I, I, I bring those up because I think one of the main areas that the world attempts to undermine the Bible is in this area of authority. And it's not just in the two areas I mentioned. It extends all the way up to honoring God's authority such that we act like Naaman. And we say, God can't tell me what is true, what is good, or what is beautiful. God doesn't get to decide what is right and wrong for me. No, I get to live, you've heard this, my truth. You know that? I am God. I decide what is true. I decide what is best. That's, that's right where Naaman is. He wants God to be less like God and more like himself, the man, Naaman. He wants God to work on his terms. He's got his transaction worked out. He's like, I've come, I've done my part, I'm, I've sown my faith seed. Where's my miracle? Ordinary word of promise. I don't want that. That's not how this should work, but God, God does whatever he pleases. He works according to his schedule and his ways, not ours. And thankfully, thankfully, Naaman has friends. His pride causes him to reject God's word. His pride blinds him to God's promise. But his friends, I'm calling them friends because mere servants wouldn't do just this. Verse 13, they, they help him to repent of his pride. Verse 13, but his servants came near and said to him, my father, it's a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he, has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? Did he, did he really say wash and be clean? We all need friends like this to confront us when we are being stupid and stubborn and prideful. I mean, I know I need them, lots of them, and so do you. It's one of the many reasons that God has given us to one another in the church, to help grab one another by the scruff of the neck as we follow Jesus together. I love how Paul says in Galatians 6, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself unless you too are tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us be willing to listen to wise counsel 
Let us be willing to give wise counsel. Let us be willing to bear one another's burdens in love with a spirit of gentleness. Naaman's friends help him to see clearly and to repent of his pride. And so we come to it in verse 14. So Naaman went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. He hears the word of the prophet, takes him a while, but then he obeys it, he listens to it. He hears the word, he washes, and he is made clean. We see that his transformation is such that his skin becomes like the skin of a little child. And it's sort of an interesting way to put it there in verse 14, and the author does it intentionally to remind us of another little child back in verse 3 and 4, I think. But the little, the little girl earlier on, she's full of faith. She pointed Naaman to the prophet so he might be made clean, and now Naaman has been washed, has been made clean, and not just physically clean, he is spiritually clean. He is converted. He is full of faith, just like the little girl. We're not going further today, but you'll see his confession there in verse 15. He says, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. He has faith like a child. He's gone from being full of pride and arrogance to having the humble faith of a little child. He has become the poor in spirit who inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, friends, that we would be like him that we would repent of our pride, trust the word of God, and obey it. This whole story, you realize, calls us to cleansing. It calls all of us to be washed and made clean. Leprosy and skin disease throughout the Bible are all pictures of the curse that this world is under, a picture of our sin. It is the one problem no man or woman can deal with on their own. We can't be rid of it. We need forgiven of our sins. We need to be cleansed. And God, in his kindness, like the little girl in our text, loves us. He loves his enemies. He loves us. He loves his enemies enough to work to save us. That's what's so staggering about John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is staggering not because of the world's bigness but because of the world's badness. In John, the world is that which is opposed to God and opposed to Jesus. And yet, God loved the world. God the Father sends God the Son and the power of God the Holy Spirit so that all who turn to the Son in faith can be saved, can be cleansed of their sins and of all unrighteousness. I mean, this is what baptism is about. This is a picture 
It's a picture of our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. It is a picture of us being cleansed of our sins, having all of our sins washed away, and being brought forth to walk in the newness of life. Those who trust in Christ are those who have washed and have been made clean. Those who hear the word and wash are made fit for the kingdom of heaven, are made fit for relationship with God. Non-Christian, implore you this morning to wash and be clean. That is, put your faith in Christ. And Christian, remember that you have been made clean. Be like the little girl. No matter your circumstance, be glad in Christ. Be patient in your affliction and be joyful. Point others, even your enemies, to the prophet who can make them clean. Tell your enemies, tell your friends, you need to be clean. There is a prophet who does that. You need to be washed, and there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Tell them. This whole, whole passage is really, it's scandalous because it underscores the love that God has for us, for his people. Do you understand this little girl to love Naaman? I mean, it's, it's crazy. For Elisha to heal an enemy of Israel? I mean, that's wild. It's be sort of like a colonial pastor helping one of the Brits during the Revolutionary War. I don't know, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But this is how God loves you. Non-Christian, you can enjoy that love if you will put your faith in Christ. I hope you'll do that and that you'll talk to any member of this church about that today. Christian, rejoice. All your sins are washed away. You've been redeemed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you wash us with the water of your word as you give to us new hearts so that we might not be as the natural man dead in sin but that we might be brought to life together with Christ Jesus our Lord we thank you that we share in his life that we are united to him in faith such that his death counts as our death such that his life counts as our life such that it is true we are seated with him right now at your right hand We thank you that we share in his life to the extent that when we die, we will go to be with him. We thank you that we share in his life to the extent that we will share in a resurrection like his. That we will have bodily resurrection and that we will live together forever, honoring you together in love. Lord, this is such good news. We thank you for the life that is ours in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.